0: Your guest host, Bill Sher, for this Friday edition of Politics, Politics, Politics. Uh, Our illustrious host, Justin Robert Young, has kindly had all of his guest hosts offer a podcast of their own for the Friday edition. And I am the host of the history podcast, When America Worked. And I say that word host very loosely because I have produced a grand total of one episode of this podcast. Uh, as, as you will hear, these are not, these are not throwaway podcasts. This is a, these are deep scripted history dives. They are laborious endeavors and they aim to tell stories that I honestly don't think you would find anywhere else because the theme of the show is great things that were achieved by pragmatic means. So it's not uh there's not huge heapings of murder mysteries and sex scandals and, and the like. Although this one coming up does have a little bit of a sex scandal in it. But uh on the whole, I think they are stories that really help tell the story of America and they don't get told. And so if you like this one and you want me to do more of them, ping me on Twitter at Bill Share, Shame Me, Guilt Me. Ask me how I can I shower you with money and do more of these, and I will oblige. Um, I'm sitting on lots of stories that I haven't told yet. So without any further ado, we don't need more intro to the intro. Uh, Here is episode number one of When America Worked. Welcome to When America Worked. True tales of America's pragmatist heroes. I'm your host, Bill Cher, and for this debut episode, we are going to talk about the person who I would argue represents the greatest distance between most good done for the world and least amount of public recognition. And that person is Edward R. Statinius Jr. There are a few controversial points I'm going to make in this episode. Number one, Statinius deserves the most credit for the creation of the United Nations. Two, the United Nations has done an enormous amount of good for the world. And number three, and this is where I'm going to begin the story, if a different member of Franklin Roosevelt's administration hadn't gotten involved in a sex scandal in 1940, the United Nations does not happen. So let's start September 18th, 1940. FDR is bringing his cabinet to Alabama for the funeral of the Speaker of the House, Alabama Congressperson William Bankhead. They're returning from Alabama, and FDR's cabinet is with him, but the Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, could not go because he was sick. He was often sick. He had diabetes, and he also had tuberculosis at this time. And the Undersecretary of State, Sumner Wells, went in his place. Before I get to the scandal, we should know more about Cordell Hull and Sumner Welles because they're both very important to the United Nations story. Cordell Hull was Secretary of State because he was politically important to Roosevelt. For 22 years, Hull represented Central Tennessee in the House, He wrote the first law establishing a federal income tax. He headed the Democratic National Committee in the early 1920s. He was considered for the presidential nomination in 1928. And he was FDR's Secretary of State for 11 years, longer than anyone has ever served in that post. And he was there because FDR, as a Northeastern liberal president, understood that having a conservative Southerner in his cabinet was very useful politically. In fact, Roosevelt approached Hull twice to be his vice president, though Hull chose to remain at state. But Hull did not come from FDR's social circle. Sumner Wells, when he was 12 years old, was a page boy at Roosevelt's wedding. Wells went to the same schools as FDR. When Wells graduated from Harvard, during Woodrow Wilson's presidency, FDR, who was in the Navy Department at the time, got Wells his first State Department job. Eleanor considered Sumner Wells to be like family. So Hull rose through the party ranks, and Wells rose through the diplomatic ranks. Hull was very elderly, chronically ill, plotting. Wells was youthful, energetic, aggressive. And most importantly, when it came to foreign policy, FDR treated Sumner Wells as a trusted confidant, experienced in the art of diplomacy he did not have the same respect and deference to Cordell Hall, who was more like a political pawn. Now let's get back to the train. It's past midnight. Sumner Wells is roaring drunk. He summons an African-American rail car porter to his car. He exposes himself. He propositions sex for money. When Wells is refused, he summons more railcar porters, makes some indirect suggestions, but still is refused. And afterwards, one of the porters files a complaint with the railcar company. Now, this is 1940. This is not the age of the internet. This is not the age of TMZ. So this does not become immediately public. But in 1940, there is still gossip. And word does spread around Washington, D.C. about what happened. In fact, it reaches FDR. FDR has J. Edgar Hoover from the FBI look into it. And Hoover uh, tells FDR that the incident did happen, but Roosevelt is not really interested in throwing his trusted friend and aide over the side, and he tucks that information away. Now, there's a man named William Bullitt, who was the former ambassador to the Soviet Union and France, and he desperately wanted vengeance. Against Sumner Wells because Roosevelt passed over Bullitt for the undersecretary post in favor of Wells. And as a little aside, Roosevelt may have had his own grudge against Bullitt because Bullitt was dating Roosevelt's longtime secretary, Missy Lehand, and it's possible that Roosevelt and Lehand had their own dalliances. Now, Bullitt was spreading the gossip about Wells' behavior on the train throughout Washington. In April of 1941, Bullitt approaches Roosevelt directly and angrily, calling Wells a blackmail risk, claiming Cordell Hull told him Wells was worse than a murderer. FDR shrugs it off tells Bullitt that Wells promised never to do it again and to make sure Roosevelt had assigned a guardian to keep an eye on Wells. In 1942, FDR turns to both Hull and Wells to write a draft charter of what he envisioned would be the United Nations. This put Hull and Wells two very different personalities in an untenable conflict. Wells was going over Hull's head. In fact, when the work initially began and Hull was ill and convalescing for a time, Wells forged ahead and submitted the first draft of a United Nations charter to Roosevelt without Hull's input. But their friction was not just a turf battle. They had substantive disagreement over the structure of the United Nations. Hull would put central power with the big four, the United States, the United Kingdom, the Soviet Union, and China. Wells sought a power sharing arrangement, which would include representatives from seven global regions. Hull thought that was a bulky structure and it would compromise the ability of the United Nations to take decisive action. But at bottom, Hull just couldn't live with Wells taking the UN portfolio. He had to get rid of him, And he used the train incident to do it. So after Bullitt's 1941 meeting with FDR, Bullitt and Hull... Kept up a whisper campaign for months, gossiping with reporters, senators, and J. Edgar Hoover, hoping to increase the pressure on FDR. In January of 1943, Hull went to Roosevelt directly, begged him, for God's sake, get rid of this degenerate. But Roosevelt brushed him off and said, Napoleon was a degenerate too. Bullitt met with Roosevelt again in July of 1943, and this time Roosevelt erupted. What if he does behave that way when he has been drinking? You're talking about Wells has been unchristian. Besides, Roosevelt needed the counsel of Wells far more than that old fool Hull. But Roosevelt was ultimately unable to side with his friend. By August of 1943, the rift between Hull and Wells had seeped into the pages of the New York Times. So details of the sex scandal probably would not be far behind. Cordell Hull sensed opportunity and went back to Roosevelt. He threatened to quit if Wells was not sacked first. Roosevelt saw he was cornered. So he tried to cushion the blow by asking Wells to move to a lesser post, but Wells opted to simply resign. So to replace Wells, FDR turns to an unlikely figure, Edward R. Stettinius Jr. And I submit to you that if Sumner Wells does not drunkenly, sexually proposition male railcar porters on the way back from the Bankhead funeral. And if Cordell Hull does not shiv wells with that information, Edward Stettinius does not join the State Department. He does not, in short order, become Secretary of State. And the United Nations does not happen. So who was Edward Settinius? Well, the man who would create the United Nations was born to the man who created the military-industrial complex, Edward R. Settinius Sr. In 1915, during the Great War, J.P. Morgan and Company had been contracted by Britain and France with the tacit approval of the then-neutral United States to supply them with weapons and other Material necessary to win the fight against Germany. Stettinius Sr. was recruited to do the job, and he was later named second assistant secretary of war by President Woodrow Wilson. One general wrote a memoir which credited the elder Stettinius for serving the Allied cause by meeting the Allied deficit of munitions at a critical time. Statinius Jr. began his adult life following in his father's footsteps, both in the private sector and the military-industrial complex. Soon after Statinius dropped out of college in 1924, he joined General Motors. General Motors was a client of J.P. Morgan, and Statinius Sr. sat on the GM board. Uh, After Satinius Jr. had a short stint working alongside the proletariat as a stockroom attendant in the roller-bearing division, he was tapped to be an assistant to GM's vice president. And at the age of 31, Satinius became vice president himself. So Satinius was born to an industrialist of the Gilded Age. But in his heart, he was a man of the progressive era. In his college days, his father scoffed at his socialistic interests, like creating an employment bureau to connect students with jobs. But Satinius brought that spirit to GM. He organized what would become the largest group life insurance program in history. During the Great Depression, he tried to combat unemployment with GM-sponsored Substance Homesteads and work-sharing programs that limited hours. So he developed a reputation as a businessman with a progressive bent. And as such, Roosevelt eyed the at the beginning of his presidency to help facilitate corporate cooperation to help tackle the Great Depression. It is very wrong to call the measures that we have taken government control of farming, or government control of industry, or government control of transportation. It is rather a partnership, a partnership between government and farming, a partnership between government and industry, and a partnership between government and transportation. A big initial part of Roosevelt's New Deal was the National Recovery Administration, or NRA. This was a partnership between public and private sectors tasked with Maintaining Economic Production. In fact, this agency was inspired by Woodrow Wilson's War Industries Board, which Edward Stettinius Sr. served on. Now, Stettinius Jr. would be the NRA's liaison to the business community. The chair of U.S. Steel was impressed with the work Stettinius did for the federal government, and he recruited Stettinius to join U.S. Steel as vice chairman in 1934. He became chair of U.S. Steel in 1938. So now Satinius was not only one of the most prominent of America's industrialists, he also had the experience of government service at a time of national crisis. So when World War II breaks out in 1939... Until 4.30 o'clock this morning... I had hoped against hope that some miracle would prevent a devastating war in Europe and bring to an end the invasion of Poland by Germany. For four long years, a succession of actual wars and constant crises have shaken the entire world. Satinius gets called back to Washington doing what his old man did enlisting America's private industries in the war effort before America actually declares war. In the summer of 1941, at 40 years of age, Stettinius takes over control of the Lend-Lease Program. This was the program which lent the Allies military supplies, which would ostensibly get returned or replaced once the war was over. In that post, he developed a reputation as a solid administrator, but he was still a rich kid. In FDR's administration, he was known as one of the tame millionaires. He had boyish good looks, prematurely silver hair, a hail-fellow, well-met demeanor, but to many, he was an intellectual lightweight. Once Ateneus replaced Sumner Wells as Undersecretary of State, Cordell Hull had a free hand to shape the structure of the United Nations. Gone was Wells' regionalist approach. And instead, Hull worked closely with Special Assistant Leo Pazvolski to produce a draft UN charter that empowered the Big Four. There would be a General Assembly for all member nations, and they would handle matters unrelated to global security, while a more powerful 11-member Security Council would give the United States, the United Kingdom, the Soviet Union, and China permanent seats as well as veto authority. Satinias plays no part in this drafting process. His leadership role in the U.N. project effectively begins at a conference at Dumbarton Oaks. By the summer, the United Nations were able to attack the problems of peace. Their representatives met at Dumbarton Oaks in Washington, D.C. This was a seven-week conference held in 1944 at a now-historic Georgetown estate. This is where the Big Four would formally agree to the principle of a global organization to maintain peace. Hull was once again in poor health, and he tapped Stettinius to run the conference. Now remember, up until this point, Stettinius had no significant diplomatic experience. And to the media, it looked like Stettinius was in over his head. Reporters were grousing that they were barred from witnessing the proceedings. So Stettinius tried to soothe them with press conferences to keep them up to speed but his performances were bumbling and furthered the impression that he was not up to the task. Syndicated columnist Drew Pearson was particularly merciless. One of the saddest sights was to see Sutinius plodding along the rough roads of diplomacy like a youngster wearing his daddy's size 12 boots. But Satinius had his reasons for keeping the press at bay. Negotiations had stalled over the veto. This was a very sensitive matter. It determined how much power the Big Four would be able to exert over the rest of the world. The Americans and the British came to Dumbarton Oaks with the view that a permanent member of the Security Council could not veto a resolution that involved a dispute to which it was itself a party. The Soviets strenuously object to this. They argue that consensus, consensus among the big four, was essential to the whole project of global security. Without an expansive veto, then the communist nation could be steamrolled by the capitalist nations. So if this dispute leaked to the press that there was this big divide over a critical question, there would have been a huge public uproar that could have made it extraordinarily difficult for to get the parties to be able to agree and could have derailed the talks altogether. Pazvolsky led a small ad hoc committee to broker a compromise. Permanent Security Council members would indeed have the veto for disputes involving themselves but only if the matter involved the prospect of military action. They would not have the veto for disputes of a Pacific nature. So while the proposal would slightly weaken their veto authority, the major powers would retain their sovereign right to use force. But when the deal was cabled to Roosevelt and to Prime Minister of Britain, Winston Churchill, and to the Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin, all three rejected it. Satinius convinced his counterparts at Dumbarton Oaks not to let this impasse sink the whole conference. So instead, they would simply gloss over it for the time being. The preliminary charter approved at Dumbarton Oaks would only say that the voting procedure was still under consideration. Satinius understood that this would have to be resolved personally by the three world leaders following Dumbarton Oaks, Hull resigned. His health was bad, but he was also sick of Roosevelt. He vented to a colleague, who later wrote, Hull was tired of intrigue, tired of being bypassed, tired of being relied upon in public and ignored in private, tired of fighting battles which were not appreciated. But when Hull sent his formal resignation letter... On November 21st, 1944, Roosevelt accepted it with a gracious and fateful reply. When the Organization of the United Nations is set up, I shall continue to pray that you, as the father of the United Nations, may preside over its first session. That has nothing to do with with whether you are secretary of state or not at the time but should go to you as the one person in all the world who has done the most to make this great plan for peace an effective fact after being under secretary of state for little more than a year the was promoted to secretary of state some foreign policy professionals were Unimpressed. Dean Acheson, then an assistant secretary of state, pegged the Tinius as a businessman who had gone far with comparatively modest equipment. Conventional wisdom held that this young fellow would be little more than a yes man to Roosevelt. Time Magazine said few doubted that under Tinius' regime, the real secretary of state would continue to be Franklin Roosevelt. That's what Roosevelt wanted, and Stettinius was not naive about that fact. When Roosevelt offered him the job, the president mentioned that he had considered Jimmy Burns. Jimmy Burns was a former senator, a former Supreme Court justice, and at that time, wielded so much power as FDR's director of the Office of War Mobilization that he had been nicknamed Assistant President. But Roosevelt explained to Stettinius, I am going to have to work awfully intimately with Stalin and Churchill. Jimmy has always been on his own. I am not sure that he and I could act harmoniously as a team. Stettinius replied, In other words... Jimmy might question, who was boss? Roosevelt said, that's exactly it. Satinius would work harmoniously with Roosevelt as his Secretary of State, but he was still very much his own man. And as you'll see, it was a very good thing for the world that he was. Here on the Black Sea, near the city of Yalta in the Crimea, is the meeting place of the leaders of Britain, Russia, and the United States. The famous Yalta meeting between Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin was scheduled for early February 1945, just two months after Stettinius was sworn in as Secretary of State. Beforehand, at the request of the State Department, Roosevelt sent a letter to Stalin and Churchill regarding the veto. Even though Roosevelt rejected the initial compromise proposal, now his letter advocated for the compromise. Churchill was siding with Stalin in favor of complete veto power for the major powers and still resisted the compromise. But even though FDR wrote that letter, or signed off on that letter, he was not deeply committed to the compromise proposal. On the way to Yalta, at a stop in Malta, Roosevelt said to Stettinius that he had a new plan. Jimmy Burns persuaded Roosevelt that the permanent members should not have the veto for any matter in which they were involved, Pacific or military. This was a troubling sign. Taking away the veto matter completely for matters in which the big four were involved, that was not going to fly with the Soviets. Probably not Churchill. Probably not the United States Senate. The whole issue of sovereign right to use force is what sunk the League of Nations proposal from Woodrow Wilson after the Great War. It seemed to suggest that FDR was not fully on top of the seriousness and the delicacy of the situation. So Satinius ignored him and stuck with his own game plan at Yalta. At the opening night dinner on February 4th, Stalin said... It was ridiculous to think that a country like Albania should or could have an equal voice with their countries. And he could never agree to having any action of any of the great powers submitted to the judgment of the small powers. And after the dinner, during a private chat with Titinius and the British foreign minister, Churchill said he was sympathetic to Stalin's view because everything depended on maintaining the unity of the three great powers. So the pressure was on Stettinius to change the minds of both Churchill and Stalin while also keeping his own president on board. On February 6th, Stettinius read the veto compromise proposal to the three leaders, walking them through the various types of disputes involving the threat of force in which they would always have the veto and the different scenarios involving peaceful settlement of disputes in which if they were party to the dispute, they would lack the veto. The principle of consensus on military matters among the biggest nations would be retained, but the UN would be... Ascettinius argued, seriously jeopardized unless any sovereign state involved in a Pacific dispute had the right to present its case. Churchill was immediately persuaded. And he now accepted that without the veto compromise, it would appear as if the three great powers were trying to rule the world. Stalin didn't budge as quickly. He apologized for not having studied the Dumbarton-Oaks Compromise closely in advance, but he still expressed lingering concern about disunity among the three of them, which could hamper global governance. Stettinius and now Churchill, sought to assure Stalin the power of the UN could not be turned against the Soviet Union or any other permanent member of the Security Council. Stalin needed some more time to think it over. But Churchill let Satinius know that what he did was hugely important. He praised the magnificent job Satinius did and explained the compromise and told him that both he and Stalin now really understood it for the first time. The next day, the Soviet foreign minister, Vyacheslav Molotov, announced his country's acceptance of the American position. Now that Satineas' explanation and presentation had clarified the whole matter. They understood the limited veto fully guaranteed the unity of the great powers for the preservation of peace. After that was resolved, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin hammered out some other agreements amongst themselves. This part did not involve major contributions from Stettinius, but the decisions they made would greatly impact Stettinius' ability to bring the United Nations to fruition. After accepting the veto compromise, Molotov saw an opportunity for a concession in return. The Soviets wanted two extra votes in the United Nations General Assembly. The British got Canada and Australia, which were part of the British Commonwealth. Why should not Russia get Belarus and Ukraine? Roosevelt reluctantly agreed to support their inclusion, but insisted the formal approval of their membership would come at the final UN conference, which was being planned for April. That was where all the participating nations of the world would come together and agree on the final United Nations Charter. The three leaders agreed that at that conference, participation would be limited to nations that declare war on at least one of the Axis powers by March 1st. Some nations, in particular six U.S.-friendly Latin American nations, had broken ties with the Nazis but had not formally declared war. So if they wanted to be part of the U.N., they would have to take that step. Stalin made clear, though, that this deal, this offer, did not apply to Argentina, which was still informally keeping its alignment with Nazi Germany. Stalin told Roosevelt and Churchill, I am not for the Argentines. I do not like them. Roosevelt and Churchill also leaned on a very reluctant Stalin to agree on a statement supportive of a democratic Poland. The Soviets had recently put in place a provisional government over the protest of the pro-democracy Polish government in exile based in London. The agreement at Yalta pledged that Poland would be reorganized on a broader democratic basis with the inclusion of democratic leaders from Poland itself and from Poles abroad. Why does all this matter? Why am I telling you about all these little side agreements that don't involve Stettinius? Well, I want you to see what it takes to navigate a multinational negotiation in an attempt to achieve world peace. So, these things seem like minor matters right now, irrelevant to the core principles of the United Nations and global governance, but all of these issues will collide at the final UN conference in San Francisco, and Satinius would be the one to do the most to navigate these conflicts and forge the final charter. Now, he could not do it all himself. He would need some help. And he got it from the United States Army Signal Security Agency, which we now know today as the National Security Agency, or NSA. The U.S. Army had developed its cryptology capacity and expertise during the 1930s under what was then called the Signal Intelligence Service. After the agency had proved its worth to the military in World War II and the war was nearing a close, the Signal Security Agency's codebreakers were put into service of the State Department in order to ensure the success of the United Nations project. Between Yalta and San Francisco was a conference in Mexico City with several Latin American nations. In advance of Mexico City, Satinius would get a taste of the intelligence which would help guide his diplomacy. So, going into the conference, the Tinius knew that the Latin American countries were dedicated to bringing in Argentina from the cold. Remember, it was just decided by Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin that Argentina was a non starter. Upon arriving in Mexico City, Tinius reported to FDR that he found the Argentina situation boiling and that the country had considerable support amongst its neighbors. So, he was so worried about a potential lack of hemispheric unity that Satinius shortly after Yalta, recommends to FDR they find a way to get Argentina in the UN by giving Argentina a set of conditions to meet. Now, this is a key point in the story because... If Stettinius was not Secretary of State at this point, if Cordell Hull had not resigned, there would not be this push to bring in Argentina in the face of what was just agreed upon at Yalta. Hull was adamantly against restoring ties with Argentina because he saw them as Nazi sympathizers. Now, Argentina missed the deadline set at Yalta to declare war on the Axis powers. Argentina was not on board by the end of the Mexico City Conference. But after some additional back-channel diplomacy after Mexico City, Argentina finally came around and declared war on the Axis. There's a bit more to that story about the back-channel diplomacy involved that I'm going to save... For what I call the liner notes portion of the episode after the main story is done. So after war was declared, on April 9th, the United States and Great Britain formally recognize Argentina. However, the Soviet Union does not. So Argentina would have to be dealt with in San Francisco at the final UN conference. Three days after Argentina's recognition by the United States, President Roosevelt dies. Vice President Harry Truman was summoned to the White House around 5 p.m. and Stettinius at 5.10. Under the Constitution at that time, Stettinius was next in line for the presidency. Eleanor broke the news to Stettinius. At Truman's request, Stettinius called for a cabinet meeting at 6 p.m. But before doing so, Stettinius, through tears, told Eleanor that he lost one of the best and closest friends I had ever had in the world. In Stettinius' relatively short time working with Roosevelt, relations between the White House and the State Department had been harmonious his relationship with Truman would be very different. Stettinius tried to start things off on the right foot at the cabinet meeting. He spoke on behalf of the group, pledged to support Truman fully. And then following the presidential oath of office, Stettinius asked Truman to make his first decision as president. Should the San Francisco conference proceed as scheduled for April Twenty-fifth. This was not a simple decision. There had already been some chatter earlier in the month about postponing the conference because the Soviets were not being terribly cooperative. In violation of what was just agreed upon at Yalta regarding Poland, the Soviets insisted that the provisional government had the right to bar anyone it wished from the reorganization talks. This meant the Soviets would keep out the democratic reformers who remained in exile in London. And around the same time, Stalin installed a communist puppet regime in Romania. And then before the month of March was out, Stalin angrily announced that his foreign minister, Molotov, would not even represent the Soviets in San Francisco and the less senior, Andrei Grumiko, would go instead. So the question was raised inside the White House, Could a United Nations, presumably premised on consensus among the major powers, even be established before resolving this growing American Soviet Union rift? But no decision to postpone had been made before Roosevelt died. Stettinius wanted to stay on track. So without any other cabinet members around, Stettinius says to Truman it was important to announce tonight that the San Francisco conference would go on. Truman offered that anything Satinius said would be all right with him. Satinius proposed, saying the conference would be held as scheduled, on the authority of President Truman, and the new president agreed. The following day, Truman told Cetinius, I shall not go to San Francisco. You will go to San Francisco and as chair of the conference conduct the meeting with great success. Hours later, Truman met with Jimmy Burns, the man FDR had passed over for state. Truman told Burns he was now under consideration for taking over as Secretary of State. Why would Truman do that? Because Truman thought Stettinius was an idiot. Years later, Truman vented to a biographer, "Satinius was as dumb as they come. More charitably, Truman also said, "Satinius was a fine man, good looking, amiable, cooperative, but never an idea, new or old. Rumors that Satinius's days at state were numbered hovered over the San Francisco conference and diminished his stature. But he still had help from the SSA going for him, Delegations to San Francisco, not using private cables for communication, were graciously offered the use of the army's communications facilities. So Satinius received intercepts from all the participating nations, except for the Soviet Union, helping him understand what problems lay ahead. San Francisco, California, a momentous conference begins. Here, leaders of the United Nations, representing all but a fraction of the Earth's population, are laying the foundations of international security in the post-war world. United States Secretary of State Stetinius opens the first session. The San Francisco Francisco conference was a huge public spectacle. 850 delegates from 50 nations, 2,650 staff members, 2,500 journalists... Unlike Dumbarton Oaks, Stettinius gave the media extensive access, but many big decisions were still made privately during meetings at Titinius' Fairmont Hotel penthouse suite. The prestige of the conference received a late boost when the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union, Avril Harriman, convinced Stalin to send Molotov to San Francisco. Molotov had a nickname. Stone Arse, and he came to play hardball. Just before Molotov landed in Washington on April 22nd, the Soviet Union had formally recognized Poland, in effect squelching hopes for a democratic Poland and instead making it a Soviet satellite. On April 24th, the day before the conference's opening, Molotov warns the Tinius that he would go home, war Belarus and Ukraine not seated at the outset of the conference. So right away, Stettinius was faced with a delicate situation. The next morning, Stettinius conferred with his bipartisan American delegation. The bipartisanship was no accident. FDR was acutely aware of what befell Woodrow Wilson's dream of a League of Nations, FDR was in the administration as assistant secretary of the Navy. When he ran for vice president in 1920, they ran on support for the League of Nations. And now in the White House, FDR had hung a portrait of Woodrow Wilson, both as an inspiration and as a reminder of how Wilson had failed. The League of Nations was Wilson's idea, Wilson got other nations, other key nations, to agree at the end of the Great War. That was incorporated in the Treaty of Versailles. But the Republican Senate had to ratify the treaty for America to formally agree and participate in the League. And Wilson took way too partisan an approach to the ratification process. The Republican Senate rejected the treaty, and so America never participated in the League and the League became a shell of what Wilson had envisioned. So FDR had made sure to cultivate bipartisanship, and that included sending a bipartisan delegation to San Francisco. The delegation included the Republican Senator Arthur Vandenberg. Vandenberg had recently converted publicly from being an isolationist Republican to an internationalist but the Michigander retained a deep skepticism toward the Soviets An uninvited guest to the San Francisco party was assistant secretary of state Nelson Rockefeller. Rockefeller carried the Latin American portfolio. He was young, ambitious, very brash. He wanted to function as the unofficial liaison to the Latin American nations, which was a sizable block of 19 votes. So at this meeting in says penthouse suite, Rockefeller informs the American delegation, the only way we get their votes, the Latin American votes, for Belarus and Ukraine's admission is to give in to their desires on Argentina. Now, even though the U.S. had recognized Argentina not too long ago, this was still a Nazi-adjacent country in the minds of many Americans, including those in the American delegation. So it was not a given that the U.S. was going to get behind that proposal. In fact, one member of the delegation questioned who Rockefeller was really working for. Are you the ambassador to the Argentine or the ambassador of the Argentine? So Tinius knew Argentina remained a sensitive matter and Rockefeller's rogue diplomacy was recklessly stirring up the Latin American delegation. Satinius uh, confided that to his diary. But Satinius was also influenced by those SSA intercepts, and they showed that Rockefeller was not misrepresenting the depth of the Latin American commitment to Argentina and regional unity. Satinius knew that Ecuador was leading a multi nation effort to pressure Stalin to drop his opposition to Argentina. He knew that Colombia had told the Soviets that blocking Argentina would impair their newly formed diplomatic relationship. If the Latin bloc was prepared to confront the Soviet Union over Argentina, then that raised the prospect of a Latin American walkout of the conference and the collapse of the conference altogether. Satinius knew Argentina had to be traded for Belarus and Ukraine. Making that trade required a delicate orchestration. First, on the evening of April 25th, Centinius met with the American delegation for the second time that day. He floated a proposal. Admit the three nations as initial members, but they would have to wait a few weeks before being able to participate in the conference. The room unanimously supported that proposal, with the exception of Vandenberg. The next morning, Satinius called Truman. He knew Truman had a great distaste for Argentina, but Satinius explained this deal was necessary to fulfill Roosevelt's Yalta commitment to support the admission of Belarus and Ukraine. Truman grumbled that Argentina didn't deserve it, but he relented. Satinius then informed the Latin American representatives that he was ready to support Argentina in exchange for their backing of Ukraine and Belarus. Now, let me emphasize again, these are all actions that Cordell Hull would not have done if he was still at state. In fact, Hull was complaining from his hospital bed at the time that Satinius' incompetence was letting in a fascist government into the United Nations. Satinius withheld his machinations from Molotov. At the April 27th meeting of the steering committee, Molotov brought up the issue of Belarus and Ukraine. The steering committee was composed of 46 delegation leaders, and while its decisions were then ratified in the plenary session, the steering committee effectively determined the positions of the conference. Molotov requested original membership for Belarus and Ukraine, and he won unanimous approval. There was pushback on an additional request from Molotov for immediate seating at San Francisco and Molotov held off. But Molotov had his own secret plan. Ahead of the steering committee meeting, he had pressured the foreign minister of Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia was occupied by the Soviets at this time. He pressured the foreign minister of Czechoslovakia to call for the admission of Poland. The Czech minister wailed to an American envoy later on at the hotel bar. What can one do with these Russians? You can be on your knees and this is not enough. The committee was shocked. They knew a clash over Poland would blow up the whole conference. Vandenberg was appalled. and quickly dashed off a statement of disapproval and slipped the note to Stratinius. Now, Vandenberg could not have known what Stratinius would do with this piece of paper. And probably would not have had much confidence. Vandenberg was dismayed when he learned Titinius would be the one leading the delegation without Truman present. He wrote in his diary on April 13th, up to now, he has only been the presidential messenger. He does not have the background and experience for such a job at such a critical time. And seeing Satinius acquiesce on Belarus and Ukraine led Vandenberg to ponder, I don't know whether this is Frisco or Munich. So Vandenberg was pleasantly surprised when Slatinius stoutly read the statement verbatim, reminding the conference that the United States had honored our Yalta engagements in behalf of Russia. There are other Yalta obligations, such as a new and representative Polish provisional government. The conference could not, in good conscience, recognize the current Polish government. Vandenberg beamed in his diary. He never hesitated an instant. The Belgian representative in the steering committee recognized Molotov was going to lose this, but he did not want him to be humiliated. So the Belgian representative shepherded through a motion expressing the hope Poland would organize a new government before the conference was over, and that motion prevented an up-or-down vote on the Molotov proposal. Still, that was not the end of the Poland dispute, and Argentina was yet to come. On the evening of Saturday, April 28th, Satinias brought Molotov to his penthouse suite, along with the foreign ministers from the other major powers and representatives from four Latin American nations. The Latin American representatives asked Molotov to support Argentina, reminding him that they had voted for Belarus and Ukraine. Molotov said he could not back Argentina without ceding Poland as well. The Latin said, forget that, as did Truman, once the Tinius reported back to him from the meeting. So when the 14-member executive committee... Met on April 30th, there was no compromise in hand. Statinius hoped to soften Molotov by agreeing to seat Belarus and Ukraine immediately. And that motion passed unanimously. But then when Mexico moved to accept Argentina, Molotov still refused without Poland. So Statinius forced resolution of the matter and called for an up or down vote on Argentina's admission. He won that vote 9 to 3 with two abstaining. Minutes later, the issue went before the steering committee, with a similar result, 29-5 to in favor of Argentina, 11 abstentions. Molotov was defiant, held court with the media, before giving one last speech to the plenary session, only to come up short there as well. And so Argentina was admitted, and Poland was not. Stratinius won the standoff. And not only had he managed to keep Poland out of San Francisco, but he kept the Soviet Union in. At an evening meeting of the major powers in the penthouse suite, hours after the vote, Molotov shows up in a good mood. From now on, matters should go smoothly, he told Satinius. Satinius had succeeded in standing up to the Soviets without shattering their working relationship. Now, Molotov's good mood may have had something to do with the fact that he appeared to be winning the battle of public opinion. Critics of Satinius in the media were unnerved by the way he won the vote with the strength of regional blocs rather than by consensus and compromise. Time Magazine called Satinius' maneuvers a straight power game, as immoral as Russia's game in Eastern Europe. A Washington Post editorial Scorched Satinius for practicing Bush League diplomacy, blundering that's worse than criminal, which offended the moral sense of onlookers. It wasn't just the the American media upset with Satinius, but people inside the American government. Secretary of Commerce Henry Wallace wrote in his diary that Satinius' own special assistant believed the Russians were right with regard to Argentina, and that many people in the State Department realized that to be the case. Two internationalist senators wired Stettinius to complain that his actions were a cynical repudiation of the whole cause of democracy. Americans did not have the benefit of the intercepts Stettinius had seen, and they already had a low opinion of Argentina, and so many bought Molotov's argument. But the fact is that Tinius was delivering on a compromise to swap the two Soviet republics for Argentina and Vandenberg explained to his aggrieved Senate colleagues that was necessary to save the conference from disintegration. SSA spying also played a critical role in the post-war spread of democracy and the demise of colonization. Satineas and the State Department had a strong interest in promoting democracy, so instead of the victorious nations of the war divvying up the spoils, the United Nations would set up a trusteeship council to supervise territories not in a position to self-govern. Satineas faced pushback. Churchill was adamant that the British must retain their colonial possessions. The U.S. military had its eyes on various Pacific islands for military bases. And Satinius knew from SSA surveillance from as early as January that other colonial powers, particularly the French, were readying a fight to keep what they had. And they felt America was being hypocritical, touting independence while claiming those Pacific islands. So Satinius took that information and chose not to push too hard. The American proposal at Yalta for this trusteeship council, while vague, focused on territories which would become separated from the soon-to-be-defeated Axis powers. Among the Allies, a colonial power would have to voluntarily cede authority over existing possessions for the Trusteeship Council to take over. Shortly before San Francisco, Satinius mollified the War Department by proposing a special designation for strategic areas used only for military purposes. Those places would not be subject to trusteeship council authority. And he decided to ease pressure on France because he wanted to win their acceptance for a permanent seat on the Security Council. All these maneuvers did not sit well with the smaller nations, and they began to view the trusteeship council as toothless. In the month of May, A seemingly semantic debate emerged over what the end goal of the trusteeship council should be. Should it be self-government for people in the territories, or more definitively, independence? The British were protective of their empire. They wanted self-government. The Soviets and the Chinese did not have the same kind of colonial arrangements. They wanted independence. So, Satinius engineered a compromise. Self-government would largely be used when describing the council's mission, but in the section describing the basic objectives of the trusteeship system, Satinius slipped in progressive development towards self-government or independence. He later received SSA intelligence that the French would accept such a formulation in which independence is set as the eventual goal for trusteeship. And that compromise was included in the final charter. When Molotov predicted smooth sailing for the rest of the conference, he was well off the mark. The Yalta compromise over the veto was now in the crosshairs of the smaller nations. Sotinius had been aware of the grumblings since March, thanks to SSA intercepts that picked up complaints from Chile, Turkey, and France. France was a hoped-for fifth permanent member of the Security Council, but France was peeved that they weren't included and invited to Dumbarton Oaks and Yalta. So they had not accepted the offer yet to be the fifth member. And they were positioning themselves to be the voice of the world's small nations. So Satinius wanted to rob the smaller nations of a powerful ally and spent the first several days of the San Francisco Conference with a stepped-up effort to woo the French. By May 3rd, the French foreign minister had reconsidered his alignments. He had grown tired of playing the games of the little nations and was concerned how the U.N. was going to treat their colonial possessions. So he told Satinius France wanted in the Security Council, and once that happened, that severely weakened the efforts by the small nations to overhaul the veto. Still, the small nations aggressively played their weakened hand. and In doing so, they almost derailed the entire conference. Harping on the vagueness of the Yalta Agreement a subcommittee was formed in the middle of May to clarify the existing veto language. And the subcommittee drafted 23 pointed questions for the Big Five, now the Big Five with France, with the intention of putting them on the defensive. It forced them to interpret the Yalta language, and in doing so, that exposed disagreements among the permanent members. Now, most of them got papered over, but one could not easily be. The Yalta Agreement did not extend the power of the veto to procedural matters. But how? How would the Security Council decide what was a substantive matter and what was a procedural matter? If that decision were subject to the veto, then a single major power could prevent the whole United Nations from as much as discussing a matter or a dispute. A draft reply to the small nations, to the subcommittee, from the Big Five, stated that the decision, whether a matter was procedural or substantive, could not be vetoed. The Soviets' uh, Andrei Gamiko, who was now speaking on behalf of the Soviets while Molotov was back in Moscow on other business, Gromyko initially signaled his approval for that reply. But at a meeting on May 26th, in the Satineas Penthouse suite, Gromyko flipped, suddenly objected, and said he would seek further guidance from Moscow. Now, everyone understood that a disagreement on the question would threaten the entire enterprise, The smaller countries wouldn't stand for a system in which their concerns couldn't be guaranteed at least a hearing, and in that event, they would likely walk out of the conference. Six days passed with the conference paralyzed, and then Gromyko announced that his superiors agreed with his objection. Satinis attempted the following day to reverse him, but that was a futile effort. Satinis recounted in his diary that Tension in the room was extreme, and neither side would budge. News of the impasse leaked to the New York Times, and that prompted chatter that the whole conference might have to adjourn without a charter. Satinius dismissed the negativity, telling an aide, we are not going to adjourn the conference, we are going to have a charter, and we are going to find an answer, and I have complete confidence. Satinius returned to an insight that helped him navigate Yalta. He called Truman and explained that on previous occasions it had been found that Stalin had not always been informed of the instructions that had been issued by the Kremlin and that on occasion it had been Molotov himself who had failed to inform his superior. Now one of Roosevelt's closest aides, Harry Hopkins was in Moscow at Truman's request to meet with Stalin and resolve the situation with Poland. So Truman approved on June 2nd, having Stratinius send a telegram to Hopkins asking for an immediate direct appeal to Stalin over this veto impasse. Hopkins and Stalin were in the midst of sealing a deal over Poland. The U.S. would not insist on including the London exiles in Poland's government. In return, Stalin offered to incorporate eight Poles outside the current regime, three from London, into deliberation on the future government. This was, in effect, conceding that Stalin would retain control over Poland and it would not be democratic. So now Hopkins had established a good working relationship with Stalin. And so in their final June 6th meeting, Hopkins cut to the chase. Would the Soviets accept not having a veto over procedural matters? Molotov was at this meeting and he tried to defend what had been the Soviet position, only to be interrupted by Stalin. He declared the whole thing an insignificant matter, and directed Molotov to stand down. Satinius had made precisely the right call in going around Molotov and making a direct appeal to Stalin. Celebrations broke out when Satinius announced the news to the steering committee. The smaller nations were not as celebratory. The 23-question strategy did not change a thing. But they were unable to rally the rest of the conference to their side, and a final charter was in sight. By mid-June, the drafting of the charter was completed, and the signing ceremony was set for June 26th, with the President of the United States to be in attendance. to last session of the United Nations Conference, Britain's Lord Halifax presiding, pays tribute to Secretary of State Stettinius, head of America's delegation and organizer of the successful nine-week meeting. Thirty-eight of fifty nations to sign is the United States of America, Secretary of State Stettinius. Ladies and gentlemen, we are all aware that this is an extremely historic occasion. The Charter for World Peace has been completed. But this is not the end, it is only the beginning. The great task lies before us, and it is our solemn and our sacred duty to see to it that the United Nations comes into, into being and fulfills its promise. With faith in our cause, and goodwill in our hearts, and determination to work unceasingly toward this end, I am confident that with God's help, we shall reach our goal. Truman sent an emissary ahead of time, George Allen, to meet with Stettinius on the morning of June 21st in the penthouse suite. Allen began with great accolades. What a marvelous job Satinius had done in San Francisco. He even went as far as to suggest that Stettinius might be President of the United States someday. But that was all just a feint. Allen went on to say, I don't know what the situation is relative to the President making a change as Secretary of State, but if he has made a commitment, I want to be prepared to talk to him. The only thing that can happen to you, is to be something bigger than Secretary of State. George, what are you talking about? Responded Satinius. I'm talking about being the United States delegate on the World Security Council. That's specifically what I mean. Satinius was begrudgingly open to the idea, but he could not completely mask his feelings. After Allen mentioned the rumor that Truman had already offered Secretary of State To Jimmy Burns, Thetinius asked, Do you think the president made a commitment to Burns? Allen conceded, I think he has. When the president sent you out here for this damn parade and reception, did he have in mind you talking to me about this matter? Allen would not cop to that. But Truman seemed to know that some groundwork for the appointments had already been laid. When Truman chatted with Thetinius the evening before the signing ceremony, he said... Are you satisfied with what I am planning? You have got to be satisfied. I want you to be. Satinius had some demands. First, he would have a strong working relationship with Burns. Second, he would not commit to staying in the post for the duration of Truman's term. And third, his prestige would be preserved to ensure his effectiveness. The announcement could not look like a kick in the pants. Truman accepted all three. The announcement was made the day after the charter was signed, and it was pitch perfect. Truman effusively praised the Tinianas for shepherding the United Nations through Dumbarton Oaks, through Yalta, through San Francisco. He said, "I can think of no better way to express the confidence of the United States in the future of the United Nations than to choose as the first delegate to the United Nations the man who has been more closely associated with the creation of the charter than any other. Lest anyone think this was some kind of demotion, Truman called the post the highest post in the gift of the government. But even though Truman bestowed credit upon Stettinius, history did not follow his cue. In November 1945, it was Cordell Hull who received the Nobel Peace Prize for being, as Roosevelt had christened him, the father of the United Nations. And Thetinius' new post was far from the highest in government. Truman did not consult him on major appointments. The responsibility for presenting the United States' positions to the United Nations would go to Burns, not Thetinius. Tired of being out of the loop... Satinius resigned on June 4th, 1946, and he bluntly told Truman, If things worked out as you and I planned them in San Francisco a year ago, I would not be here today resigning. Satinius wanted out of public life, but he was just 45 years old, and he had not lost his interest in the public good. He threw himself into an effort to promote economic development in impoverished Liberia, He wrote a book defending Roosevelt's handling of the Soviet Union in Yalta, which had increasingly been criticized as soft. But the Liberian effort sputtered. His finances suffered so much he had to sell his prized Virginia estate. Then in October of 1949, just days before his book Roosevelt and the Russians was to be published, Edward Stettinius. Died of a heart attack. He was forty-nine years old. Statinius has been forgotten by history for several reasons. One is the public's long-standing ambivalence about the United Nations and any hope that the UN would allow the U.S. and the Soviet Union to jointly govern the world in harmony was soon replaced by the anxiety of the Cold War. Days before Zetinius' death, the conflict over the economic management of post-war Germany culminated with the establishment of East Germany as a Soviet-run state. And then Mao Zedong won the Chinese Civil War, further unsettling Americans about the spread of communism. The, the perception of the UN as a worthless debating society has only sharpened and deepened in the decades since. It's a perception that does not match reality. In the first half of the 20th century, before the UN's founding, the world suffered more than 90 million casualties from two world wars. Whether this is strictly causal or not, the fact remains, in the decades since the UN was created, there have been no subsequent world wars. Those wars that were still fought resulted in far less carnage than might have otherwise been the case. The Human Security Report Project, a research center affiliated with Simon Fraser University in Canada, credits the United Nations in large part for the dramatic reduction in war-related deaths. From 240 per million in 1950 to less than 10 per million in 2007. The 2013 edition of the report explained, popular revulsion generated by the mass slaughters of World War II strengthened the emergent norm that prescribed the resort to war except in self-defense or with the imprimatur of the UN. The report further argued that the end of the Cold War has led to a current period of New Peace, in which a key proximate cause is the U.N. spearheading a massive upsurge in international activism directed towards preventing wars, stopping those that could not be prevented, and preventing those that had stopped from reigniting. An earlier version of the report found that after the Cold War, we saw a five-fold increase in the number of diplomatic interventions intended to bring armed conflicts to a negotiated settlement, such as the UN's involvement to settle civil wars in Cambodia, El Salvador, Guatemala, Liberia, and Mozambique. Beyond the dramatic reduction in bloody conflict, the UN proved to be a major catalyst in the spreading of democracy. In Stephen Schlesinger's account of the United Nations creation, he praises the Trusteeship Council for sparking the almost total decolonization of the world. Schlesinger cites the conclusion of former UN official Sir Brian Urquhart that the three chapters of the charter on dependent peoples and trusteeship gave a momentum and a legitimacy to decolonization. That brings me to a second factor contributing to why Satineas' work was unappreciated in his time and afterward. We, as a people, are much quicker to laud sweeping policies than careful compromises. Centinius did not win an immediate end to colonization in the Charter. Advocates for Independence criticized his trusteeship council language as watered down and self-serving. But his faith in the import of codifying the word independence at the expense of other concessions was in fact borne out. Satinius' place in history suffered as well from being in the shadow of Cordell Hull. The father of the United Nations claimed in his own memoirs that the important work had taken place on his watch, not Satinius'. The chief foundation of the World Organization, including its basic principles and machinery, grew out of the five-year study and preparation that culminated in the meeting at Dumbarton Oaks. If out of the Charter of the United Nations that emerged from San Francisco, one were to take the Dumbarton Oaks proposals, the remainder would in a large sense resemble a tree without a trunk or roots. True enough, but the difficult diplomatic work of winning the necessary support From the nations of the world was the water that made the tree grow. Truman appeared to recognize this fact in his remarks announcing Cetinius' reassignment. But with Truman subsequently undercutting him, those remarks have failed to resonate over time. Not even the United Nations itself has memorialized Cetinius' contributions with so much as a plaque. The world is full of good ideas, but not everyone has the skills to make them reality. To Truman, Satinius never had an idea, new or old. But as the historian Thomas Campbell observed, Satinius was a man of action rather than ideas. Satinius knew when to do the deal and when to stand his ground. He knew when to stand his ground, in part because he was an eager consumer of clandestine surveillance. He was able to do the deals because, beyond his own personable nature, he had little interest in transparency for transparency's sake. And he cannily kept sensitive disputes quiet. Maybe his geniality didn't make Satinius well-suited for a long career in the political arena, where cutthroat personalities tend to survive and thrive. But during his short tenure in the State Department, during the course of his short life, Statinius did more than most to curtail the scourge of war. As the Episcopal priest who officiated Statinius's funeral said, Blessed are the peacemakers, For they will be called children of God. Thank you for listening to this edition of When America Worked, this first edition of When America Worked. I'm going to proceed to the liner notes portion of the episode, and the concept of a liner notes portion comes from the great podcast Cocaine and Rhinestones, which I certainly recommend you check out. And it's a way to get into the credits, to list any resources that were used uh, for the research of this episode, and to get into any controversies, disputes, side stories that didn't quite fit into the main body of the story. And I alluded to one along the way, which is the story of the backchannel diplomacy to the Argentinian strongman Juan Peron, which followed the Mexico City conference just before the San Francisco conference. And I did not get into it in the main part of the story, one, because we were running a little long, and two, it's a little unclear, a little murky if Statinius was directly involved, although, as you will hear, it, it does seem like he was. And the information about this story I got from the book, The Dismantling of the Good Neighbor Policy by Bryce Wood. Basically, the bulk of the people in the State Department did not want to court Argentina. Satinias did, and Nelson Rockefeller did. Rockefeller, one of the assistant secretaries of state, with the Latin American portfolio, he created the back channel to Perón using a British envoy, and, and FDR was looped in here. Uh, Rockefeller did talk to FDR, but it looks like Satinius was part of this secret plan as well, as Wood writes. In efforts to shield themselves, Rockefeller and perhaps Satinius left no trace in the State Department archives nor apparently in their personal papers that they made use of a British diplomat to get their message to Perón, thus bypassing the Embassy of the United States as well as the Department of State. And there's also a letter from one British official to another which cautioned if another Assistant Secretary of State found out about what was going on, he would, quote, blow both Rockefeller and Stettinius sky-high in revenge, unquote. So think about that. The Secretary of State, in all likelihood, had to keep the rest of his own department in the dark to conduct this diplomacy, to create this back channel to Perón, uh, and that clandestine strategy worked out. It's also notable that it appears that Stettinius and Rockefeller were working together at this stage of the process before San Francisco. Yes, the did not trust Rockefeller well enough to invite him to San Francisco and help finish the job and was quite annoyed at Rockefeller's freelance diplomacy with the Latin American countries at San Francisco. One other little thing, a, a slight discrepancy in some of the accounts that I read uh, in preparation for this episode relates to the meeting that Stettinius had with Truman right after FDR dies and the decision to go forward with the San Francisco conference is made. Uh, As I said in the show, uh, Stettinius made the recommendation to Truman that they go on as scheduled and Truman accepted. That comes from Stettinius' diary, and this is the exact wording. Uh, I was shown into the red room where Truman, his wife, and daughter, and Steve Early were alone. Steve Early was FDR's press secretary. I said that it was important to announce tonight that the San Francisco conference would go on. Truman said that anything I might say would be all right. I said I would say that on the authority of President Truman, I wish to announce that the San Francisco conference will not be postponed. The president asked me to please make the announcement. So the way it's told in the diary, Satinius is the driver. In Truman's memoir, which is titled The Memoirs of Harry S. Truman, Year of Decisions, Volume 1, he writes, But on my first evening as president, my principal concern was about the San Francisco conference. After the cabinet meetings, to Titinius, Early, and Daniels, Daniels was also in FDR's press shop, Stettinius, Early, and Daniels suggested that something needed to be done further to reassure our allies and the world that the San Francisco conference would be held as planned. So it's a slight difference in emphasis and tone. It makes it sound more like it was already on Truman's mind. Three people made the suggestion to him, and and they were all on the same page. Considering that Truman was not the biggest Stettinius fan and that Satinius was hardly the biggest showboat and grandstander in the history of American government, I'm inclined to take the Satinius description of the event in his private diary uh, at face value. And now for other resources used to write this episode. Most of the information from the episode comes from two books about the creation of the United Nations, Act of Creation, the Founding of the United Nations by Stephen Schlesinger, and Masquerade Peace, America's UN Policy, 1944-1945 by Thomas M. Campbell. Campbell also co-edited the diaries of Edward R. Stettinius Jr. 1943 to 1943-1946. More direct observations from Stettinius, particularly about Yalta, are found in his book Roosevelt and the Russians. For more on the Sumner-Wells episode, uh, you should go to Sumner-Wells, FDR's Global Strategist, which was actually written by Wells' son, Benjamin Wells. Uh, There's also some other light shed on the Wells episode in the book Churchill, Roosevelt and Company, Studies in Character and Statecraft by Louis E. Lehrman and Roosevelt's Secret War, FDR, and World War II Espionage by Joseph E. Persico. You can get more of Cordell Hull's perspective from the memoirs of Cordell Hull. Also, thoughts on Hull came from the memoirs of Dean Acheson, which were titled Present at the Creation, My Years in the State Department. Uh, I also got a little bit uh, from a 2015 op-ed in the Richmond Times-Dispatch, titled Virginia's Surprising Role in the Founding of the United Nations. That was written by G.C. Morse. That's about Satinias. You can get more on Arthur Vandenberg from the book Harry and Arthur, Truman, Vandenberg, and the Partnership that Created the Free World by Lawrence J. Haas. Uh, You can get more on Jimmy Burns from the books Sly and Able: a Political Biography of James F. Burns by David Robertson and the End of an Alliance, James F. Burns, Roosevelt, Truman, and the Origins of the Cold War by Robert L. Messer. Those uh, not-so-nice words about Stettinius from Truman, that came from an unsent letter to his biographer, Jonathan Daniels, uh, Daniels, which was mentioned just a few minutes ago, and an interview with Daniels. The letter was published in, off the record, the private papers of Harry S. Truman, and the quote, Uh, from the interview you can find in the book In the Shadow of FDR, From Harry Truman to Barack Obama by William E. Lichtenberg, And that description of Thinus' father as the father of the military-industrial complex comes from the book The House of Morgan, An American Banking Dynasty and the Rise of Modern Finance by Ron Chernow, Chernow, who you may know as the author of the very famous Alexander Hamilton biography. Uh, A lot of the historic audio you heard, including the voice of Satinius at the end of the San Francisco conference, that came from United News newsreels, which were produced by the Office of War Information and are now housed at the National Archives. You also heard two of FDR's fireside chats, portions of them, one came from the second Fireside Chat, delivered on May 7, 1933. That was about the government's partnership with industry. And the 14th Fireside Chat from September third, 1939, and that was about the war in Europe. This edition of When America Worked was written, narrated, and produced by me, Bill Scher. Uh, some audio editing was done by Adam Dunitz. Narrative consulting by Elijah Bacall and the podcast Art was created by Tom Pappalardo. If you want to support this podcast and help keep it going, please subscribe and write a review with your favorite podcast service. Please share it with at least one friend who you think might be interested. You can support it financially through my Patreon page at patreon.com slash billshare. And my name is spelled B-I-L-L-S-C-H-E-R. And you can also find the podcast on my website, which is shareable.com. And again, that is S-C-H-E-R-A-B-L-E.com. I'm now going to get to work on episode two, which is going to be about Shirley Chisholm. And in particular, her little known friendship with the segregationist George Wallace. So if you want to hear that, you want to help me put that episode together, please support the show in all the ways I described. This has been When America Worked. Thanks again for listening.